You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Marlon James. Hello, is this Marlon James? Oh, hold on one second. I just realized that I was trying to put um, a speaker going so that it would be playing music. Instead, it just puts your big, booming voice. Tell me, do you, while you're, while you're writing, do you actually play music? I do. I can't write in silence. You know, I grew up in a very busy urban place. There's always noise. There's always traffic. There's always sound systems playing, there's reggae blasting from everywhere else. So it's like, this is the only time I feel comfortable. When I'm in my office writing, I open the windows just so I can hear traffic. Really? Um, yeah. So I, I, I can't, I, I, I didn't grow up in quiet. You grew up in a place like Jamaica or, or you grew up in Kingston or New Orleans or Calcutta or so on. You just, you don't know quiet. You don't know what to do with it. And, and what... Does music? I mean, I, I I suspect that different musics music inspire different kinds of writing, or, or I don't know. I um, for example, my last novel, of course, um, was hugely built around Mali, a reggae star. Yeah, but I rarely played reggae. I played lots of Bjork, um, lots of Stereo Lab, um. And lots and lots of German 70s rock, like Can and No and Faust, and lots of craft work. Um, lots of John Peel sessions, like the Adam Ann's Peel sessions and the Joy Division and the New Order Peel sessions. Um, that was kind of the one thing I didn't do. So in a way, the, the writing, one might say, was, was what supplied what you were not listening to, and what you were listening to in some way inspired the writing, but not because it was a direct link. Not because it was a direct link. I think one, I don't know if it so much inspired the writing as it created space. Yeah, I, I, I hate the word inspired. I, I retract that immediately. I know, I was just... Um, um, hanging out with somebody um, who was mentioned that they were a playwright, but they write when they're inspired. And like, oh, that's wonderful. I haven't been inspired to write anything in thirty years. Right. <laughs> what 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 do you what do you dislike about the word inspired? One one thing I dislike about it is the whole idea that that talent and inspiration is this um, sort of capricious. Um, flighty thing that, you know, if it happens to strike you, then you can do something. And if it doesn't, it, it, you know, you don't do, you don't produce anything. I think, I don't think talent works that way. Either you have the talent or you don't. I also think if you develop a routine and develop a seriousness, the muses, the inspiration, whatever you want to call her, will show up. It's, um, you know, you direct inspiration. Inspiration doesn't, doesn't direct you. So in a, in a way, it it fights this this very romantic idea of um, the poet or the writer or the creator being v- having a visitation, as it were, being visited by the muse. And no serious poet believes that. You know, poets poets get down to work just as as any other creative person. 
you know, the, the dancer gets done to work. I like that Hemingway always walked around with his, his typewriter because his typewriter meant that when he's writing, he got done to work. And, um, and I'm a big believer in that, that writing is work. So, um, you know, uh, we have so many negative associations to the term work that we think it's uh, almost a pejorative. But writing is work for me, and it's, um, I just don't have the luxury of waiting until mood strikes. I don't have the luxury of waiting until this sort of inspiration um, strikes. I also don't believe that's how ideas work. How, how do they work? I think ideas hit you when you're busy. I think when you're in, the, when you are, when you are already in the process of discovering, of writing, of creating, that's what leads to creation. And I think, um, John Didion is right, which is that we write to discover how we think. You don't discover how you think, then write. So it's in, in the, it's in the process of writing that, that you, you come into being. You know, I'm always reminded, of the origin of the word autobiography, which literally means to come into life through the mm -hmm. act of writing, graphene, like gra graphology. The very act of inscribing words on a page brings yourself to life. Yeah. It's, 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 um, You can, you know, you can, you can write your way into creativity. It's like you can, you can, you can write yourself into being. Um, you know, I wrote an article when I said, um, you know, reading, reading Salman Rushdie's novel, she and made me realize the person is something you can write your way into or write your way out of. Um, so that's why I kind of don't believe in writer's block. Uh, you can, you can read your way out of writer's block. You know, I just had a conversation, Marlon, the other day, a few, a couple of weeks ago, not, not even quite, with Neil Gaiman. And he said exactly the same words you just uttered. I do, I do not believe in writer's block. You know what he said? He said, I don't believe in writer's block. It just comes back to me, Marlon, and forgive me for interrupting you, but I want to retrieve what he said. I always forget what people say. I just speak to them. But what he said is, um, I don't believe in writer's block. And then I said, but, but you know, it has such uh, power that word of writer's block. He said, yes, because writers are incredibly good at convincing you and they're incredibly smart at trying to make this into a reality. But in fact, it does not exist. Oh, he's absolutely right. I think it's, it's, it's like inspiration. Um, yeah. You know, this sort of thing that, you know, I think, I think sometimes people confuse inspiration with ideas. Um, uh, yes, ideas, ideas, you know, you can't, I don't think, you, you can rarely, can you sit down and construct an idea, it's like trying to construct an accident. Um, so ideas can come to you, but the sort of inspiration, the push, the most, the, 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 the that spark that gets you into something, if you're going to sit down and wait on it, what happens if that spark doesn't happen for 15 years? You know, it's, it's this idea that, um... Art is something so precarious that uh, if if you're not visited by the grand theory of ideas, then you're you're kind of blocked. 
um, writing is also rigor. Writing is also polish. Writing is also dedication. Writing is also craft, which people seem to forget. I, I tell my students, writing is also practice. Um, you know, your 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 first draft or your first two things is not the spewings of genius that should be left untouched. It's a it's it's a barely fleshed out idea um, that you need to know, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. What do you? How do your students? I'm I'm sure there's not one, but generally speaking, or how do some of the students react to basically this invitation to not wait around? But to get down to work, well, they, they sometimes they, they they approach it with gusto, but a lot of time they approach it with trepidation because they're still under this idea that they have nothing to say. And I think that's one of the things, that certainly at their age, that they consider a block. You know, it's you have two people. You have the people who think I'm such a freak, I'm such a nerd, I'm such an outcast. Nobody would like me even though they're writing fiction. And then you have other people who think, my life is so privileged and dull and boring, I have nothing to write either. And the funny thing about those people, the ones who think your lives are too good and the ones who think your lives are too bad, is that they're both responding out of shame. It's bo Both of them have the same shame response, which is, in some way, I am not worthy of, of, of um, writing. I'm not worthy of expressing myself for whatever reason. And... Um, my advice to writers, particularly if they're writing nonfiction, is stop being self-hating or self-loving and become self-curious. Um, you know, look at writing. Um, writing can be a lot of things, but writing is also a mystery to solve. You're not going to solve it, but the attempt is great. Um, and I think that, that there is um, a lot of mystifying that goes on when it comes to to writing and writers, and I do think ultimately comes down to, to talent, but I think a lot of it is just this sort of literary hocus-pocus that we all sort of spread around. Did, did you suffer from, from this form of, um, of, of what you call shame, which is such an interesting term in analytical terms, it really, uh, I, I, I think, is what, what makes people feel uh, alone, uh, and and um, shame is something that isolates us. And I wonder mm -hmm. if in your earlier years, before uh, being recognized, and I certainly know that there was such a time from, mm -hmm. from just hearing the other day how many rejections you got before, before Johnny Temple published you at, at Akashic Books. You had to really, really pursue that 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 um insistence to 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 wanting to be to be published or wanting to for people to read you or hope and i'm just wondering did you did you as you now counsel students or at least try to guide them uh, did you suffer from that that form of shame um in the way it did the, the, the my i think mine worked in a sense that it didn't stop me from writing, but it stopped me from sharing. Ah, that's in, that's so, so that's fascinating. Like by the time I ended up, you know, by the time I came across or did, um, Johnny Temple of Akashic Books, yeah, I already, I would have had a manuscript ready, but nobody would have, but nobody read it. I think, um, this, I, you know, and, and part of it is me thinking I'm writing just for myself, 
But also a huge part of it is this sort of, um, why would anybody want to read this? Um, what would come out if, if this came out? You know, I'm writing a novel that skews the questions, um, religion and sexuality. And at the time, I was still a member of a church. So even in, in you know, in, in that sense, there are just so many, so many different things that were, um, playing against me and, and and create this kind of, uh, I guess, shame response. Well, you know, what, it's, what it strikes me that you're saying is there, there, there may be not, no writer's block, but there are roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, I think... Um, yeah, and, and the, the, I don't know. I, I look at, at, at literary... I, I, I like... I, like I, I think I like more of a sort of literary impasse or something like that That's and i think uh the uh block whatever it is 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 um the story trying to tell you something i was talking to somebody about this yesterday they said um they're three-fifths into the novel and they just felt blocked and they haven't been able to go back to it and so well, maybe the three-fifths is telling you something that uh you know maybe you're falling into that problem carlos winters talks about how the worst thing is to get to an end of a novel to write a novel and it ends exactly how you thought it was going to when you began it um so that's what you rather than listening to to this elusive news listen to what the novel is telling you i mean this is what you're saying develop a, a sense of yeah. hearing that is hearing something else than you know the solitary confined writer who's waiting for the visitation mm. or listen to your characters right uh, um hopefully the- that if you've been writing them for a little bit your characters have become people you know um it, it it always reminds me i don't know if you know this we've been there've been so many references going around uh, in our conversation i want to come back to one of the, to some of them but marlon do you know that when when balzac died um i i think in 1850 at the age of 50 or 51 he asked for le médecin de campagne for the country doctor one of his characters in uh, la comédie humaine in the human comedy to come by his bedside mm-hmm. so you know he believed so much in his characters that actually the character who was a doctor he wanted him to come and, really? and, and t- yes, isn't it amazing? I mean, so, so powerful was that creative imagination. But, but, um, Marlon, you were mentioning all kinds of writers. You just meant, mentioned Fuentes. You, you've mentioned so many others. You mentioned music at the very beginning of our conversation. I want to come back to one reference, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is the typewriter reference, which is Hemingway. And I know in speaking with Johnny, um, and telling him that I might have the pleasure of speaking with you, he said, you know, ask ask Marlon about Hemingway. Ask him about Hemingway and ask him about Faulkner. <laughs> so so this, this <laughs> I, I'm glad you're laughing. This, que- mm-hmm. this question comes from me um, via Johnny Temple. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Hemingway, I mean, I, te- I teach hills like white elephants. I teach the Nick... Car- the Nick um, I always get it. Why do I keep calling him Nick Carraway? Nick Carraway is Gatsby. The Nick Adams stories. Yes. Um, because the two things, two things that I like most about Hemingway are economy and momentum. I think, um, 
that there's so much in, in Hemingway that he leaves to gesture, that he leaves to almost the, 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 the prose equivalent of white space. Yeah, and, um, and, and that, that be, believing that the way in which people talk and the way in which people act and react is all you need to provide some text in a novel. And I think that's something that people continually forget. I teach students who grew up in the age of film and TV. So, I mean, 50% of my response, my, my examples in a fiction class are still film. Because the only thing that will work for me to get them to understand economy is to say, think in terms of the cinematic. If this were a film, how would that look? If this were a stage play, what you, what, what is here that you would not be able to use? And I think um, Hemingway is very, very instrumental in, 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 in recognizing the, the, what's going on in say, the actuality of the scene. Um, you know, I, I say to people all the time, a sunset doesn't need your help. You, if you don't need to draw for your long-waiting metaphor or swan. Just describe it. Just tell us what's going on. Um, as for, you know, as for... Um, for Faulkner, I mean, if you're if you're Tony Morrison, if you're Gabriel Garcia Marquez, if you're writing about any people coming out from slavery or serfdom or any kind of situation like that, Faulkner is the sort of ground zero. He's sort of the um, the, the the inspiration through which we all come. Um, the idea that the voices that come out of your mouth are valid enough is valid enough. For literature, I'm sure Mark Twain, of course, but Faulkner is a person who took us in all these directions that we never thought of um, to, you know, show the darkness that runs in the sort of underbelly of family, um, the feats that you can take with language, the being external and internal at the same time. The thing about Faulkner, which I find really interesting, is that he's both florid and, e- and, and economical at the same time. Just kind of, you think those things are contradictory, but he manages both at the same time. Which I am still trying to figure out how he does it. And what's so interesting about those two examples is the way you describe them, both Hemingway and Faulkner, in both cases, you use the word economy, and in the case of, of, uh, of Hemingway, you use momentum, and in the case of Faulkner, you use florid, and in the case of Hemingway, you use the idea that you try to have your students or whoever is reading to imagine film. And I'm wondering when, when 50% of your class is made by film references and by having them, I imagine, watch some films, which ones do you have them watch that you think might be, might be inspiring, might be helpful? Film. Which films? Uh, the Manchurian Candidate is really, really helpful in understanding how to write characters who do bad things to other people. Um, the Conformist is a really, really good one. Oh, I have to see uh, that again. Uh, sorry? I have to see that again. It's so long ago. But both the, the movie and the book are so extraordinary. Yeah, the, 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 rare, the rare movie book competition that's, that's both perfect. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, what else do I have them watch? The Tin Drum, the film. Um, 
usually is usually quite a bit of them. Uh, <clears throat> lots of noir, like Kiss Me Deadly, or The Grifters. The the because the other thing that that film does, and sometimes it's not just film. I have them read scripts. Uh, for example, scripts from The Sopranos are really helpful at multiple levels. Dialogue being just one of them. That the one of the things I find, I don't know, I, 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 and I only teach undergrads, so I don't know if this is an MFA problem. But what I find with my students from say eighteen to twenty-one is that they have very, they have problems staying in the present tense of their stories. So they will start a story, and within a paragraph, they're in a flashback to twenty years ago. And I'll make, and, and the thing about that is, it doesn't matter if there are five explosions, two murders, three superheroes save the world in the past. You're still writing a story about a guy sitting down in a chair and thinking. It's uh, it, the reader is on pause, but they just—it's the hardest thing for them to grasp being in the present tense. And I think part of it stems from them believing that their own present tenses aren't very interesting. Yet, yet, I mean, we're we're back again to to what you what you said earlier, which is, um, is their voice interesting or do they remain shameful? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it it's another way of it, of expressing it. It is. It's it's how it's expressed in fiction. As you know, if 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 what's happening in the present tense of your story isn't as compelling as the past that you're remembering, why not just set it in the past? I That was a dilemma I had with my second novel. My second novel was set in 1834. It was based around the court inquest about an escaped uh, former slave. And um, every time I went to a, a flashback, I, the book just came alive for me. Whereas every time I went into the present, it became a chore. That is, you know, it's like I look at it and just thought, "Well, this too shall pass." <laughs> and I said, "You know what? Why not just set it in the past?" So the novel went back thirty-four years in the past. The language changed, and it became the Book of Night Woman, my second novel. And and um, Marlon, your your upcoming book mm-hmm. is set. One might say even more. I mean, you were telling me a tiny little bit about it, nuggets, mm. uh, just really an hors d'oeuvre. You were, uh, it was kind of a little appetizer, an amuse-bouche, as it were. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is. You, your, your next novel is taking us to, is it the 15th or 16th century? I can't remember now. Tell me. Even earlier than that. We're oh. talking like uh, probably a little, little... A little after the the the, the little after the Iron Age, but before we get to the Middle Ages. So, so twelfth century. So it'll be like the nine hundreds. Oh, so the 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 tenth century or something like that. Yeah, and it's weird saying that because a lot of those, those terms, for the most part, are European terms. So, like people who've read it so far go, "Yes, this is really cool," but I don't get a sense it's dark ages. I'm like, "Well, you, you won't." Because the dark ages is a European term. So that type of, it's tricky saying it's set in the past because I'm not using that kind of timekeeping. So what time is it set in, 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 in non, in non-European terms? What, 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 in what? In non-European terms, there really isn't time like that. There's, I mean, the closest would be Arabian terms. Um, that's interesting. Stuff, 
make help, it, help me yeah, help, yeah. help me think about this i'm i'm yeah, it's not necessarily set the thing is it's not necessarily set in a time or space but the guidelines i'm using would be medieval africa medieval africa Just in the same way, say, Game of Thrones is not necessarily set in a specific time or space, but you can tell it's taking its cues from the Dark Ages. And so this will be a, um, a novel set in, in the 10th century. We won't give a name to that, to that uh, uh, period. But the first thing you have to let go of is the idea of setting. Okay, correct me. Because I think we in the West use time and place as a grounding, and I'm ripping that grounding away. How so? Meaning that it could be, meaning that somebody could easily read this novel as set in an alternative universe as today. Even though certain concepts aren't in there, like the concept of speed, or the concept of velocity, or the concept of um, time being linear, or so on. So, so it's 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 um in other words nobody there there is no nobody suddenly shows up with a with a with a super sophisticated you know powered vehicle. So is it still, is it science fiction in reverse? It's sort of a science fiction in reverse. This is why I have no problem calling it fantasy. So would 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 um would predecessors of this way of thinking? exist in the West? I mean, would, would someone like Tolkien or others be, be, be um, I don't know. I, I have no idea, actually. I'm, and, and, and the interesting thing in, in the West, I imagine, which I'm, I'm, I, I suppose I'm infused with is that we always look for, um, our bearings. And I think it was very interesting the other day when Paul Beatty said, you know, we, we, we compare, um, uh, 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 Tony Morrison to such and such, but we don't make the inverse comparison. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, who does this compare to? Or is that even a ridiculous question? Uh, you, you know, I, I think I'm, you know, the, the, the things I'm most inspired by, not in, in the, in the, not in, in the context of, of setting and place would be something like Arabian Nights. Ah. Or, um, you know, the, 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 the Calavilla, or, um, I probably pronounced that wrong. Um. How about the, the Norse mythology? The Norse mythology, yes. Uh, you know, that it's, it's, um, you, you, you can tell that the times when it, when it was being, Norse gods are being worshipped, but you can't necessarily say the Norse gods fit within a specific time. That's right. If one, gods are beyond time and space. Um, <laughs> but, it's, it, but, but that's one of the things that I think um, readers, when you read this, we're going to have to let go of a little bit. Like, where and when can I place this? I'm like, well, you're talking about some countries that have a different word, you know, that don't even have a word for the word time. And maybe, maybe don't, you know, don't have this concept, which is quite recent of timekeeping. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. clocks, clocks and such uh, make that apparition. I can't quite remember, but it's in the 15th century. Mm -hmm. So even me saying it's said in medieval times, medieval means medieval Europe. Right, 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 right. Mm. 
and and these periods are defined um, retrospectively anyway. People who lived in the Middle Ages didn't know that they were living in the Middle Ages. Right, and then, you know, their like, age of discovery, we, we, we already discovered ourselves. You know, it's like, age of who's this, you know, who's age of discovery? Um, so it's, uh, so with, so with that, with, you know, with that in mind, it's a novel. I mean, I'll say it's it's set in an imagined past, but it's set in a past in which people from the past would have viewed it. So yes, there are monsters. Yes, there are witches. Yes, there are people that can fly. Yes, there are shape shifting animals. But these creatures, these people, don't draw attention to themselves because it's taken as a given in the world that there are these things. So you know. Um Kaylee Kaylee Jones um, was particularly intrigued by the the conversation I might be having with you, and um, she she wrote this to me. She said one of the many aspects of your writing, Marlon, is your ex- exceptional talent for dialect. I have never found your dialect difficult to read or to understand. No one is better than you, and you're up there with Richard Price and Toni Morrison. In your new novel, your epic fantasy about ancient Africa, mm-hmm. are you attempting to introduce any aspects of language that will be innovative? No, that is a tricky. That is, no, that is tricky, and that is um, territory you have to step into carefully. For example, I I was learning Wolof. And I was, I was gonna learn Yoruba and somebody pointed out, Yoruba is a commitment, you maybe try Swahili first. And I thought about that, but now we're running into really tricky territory here, because if I do that thing that people do where you write in English and drop a smattering of African languages, then you're treating a language like it's spice. Uh, it's not, it, it, you, I don't think you serve the language very well. At the same time, I wasn't gonna have my characters speak Wolof like Wolof or some form of Elvish. Uh, I can't do I can't do with an established language what Tolkien did with invented languages. So where do what do I find myself doing? I find myself conjugating sentences in the way in which a lot of these languages conjugate conjugate sentences. For example, a character in my book would say they found the ten and nine doors. They're not going to say the nineteen doors. Because ten is the is the biggest unit, then it's ten and one, ten and two, ten and three, ten and four, ten and five. Take so the ten and nine, and then maybe they'll say twenty. So I use I remember things like that in terms of how I'll use it. The way in which way in which the order in which words fall on the page, the allusions that they draw, the way in which numbers and times observe. So I will say things like that. I'll say things like instead of um you know, it's it's a it's a crescent moon, and so the crocodile has almost finished eating the sun. Because that's kind of, that's how it would be how it would be phrased. So I don't try necessarily to. So I'm still using dialects, and I'm still inventing dialects. But what I'm more interested in the the way in which meaning is comes across in a language like Wolof, and the way in which words fall on the page, but still same with English. And the fact is I still, I come from an English language speaking country. I'm writing a novel in English. So there's a lot of that, um, you know, to play with. If some of the characters speak straight up pigeon, 
um, which I also had to learn. Um, but a lot of it is me simply sort of, I guess, taking risk in English with the way in which these languages work in their own. So it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. It's precarious. I'm sure one or two people are still going to slam me for it. But that is the way I found, that was the only way I found I could get into the story. I'm so I'm so glad that that um, that Kaylee asked you this question. Um, Kaylee occupies a, a a really important space in in your life, and mm-hmm. I, I I don't know how who you would say she is for you. What word you would use to, you know, we I I certainly would never dare nor uh, never care to use the word influence. But she's yeah. she's something very special that I suspect everyone should have at some point. Very, very special. You know, I mean, Florian, you kind of talk about oh, great prose resists paraphrase. I think great people resist paraphrase. So it's 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 where it's 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 trying to sum up. I mean, mentor, obviously, um, first major creative writing teacher. Um, you know, obviously, um, the person who saved my literary career, well, first by telling me that I could have one. Right. Um, the, you know, the person who more than almost pretty much single-handedly brought back my confidence in being a writer and that I had something, that I had something to say. And, um, and it's just amazing that she was replacing, and she was a last-minute replacement for that workshop that where we met. Where was it? Remind me. It was it was a calabash. Right? It wasn't calabash. They used to have a, a workshop, which I hope I keep praying they bring back. Well, we, we, they they must. I don't want to know that the, the next me or the next Aisha and Hutchinson who just won the National Book Critic Circle Award. We both came out of that workshop. I don't want to know that next Aisha is sitting on there waiting for an opportunity, um, because. It wasn't for for Kaylee, so um, I've never been so in a weird way happy that somebody got sick. Did Did she say something to you uh, in particular, Marlon? Was there a, a, a sentence or a sentiment, something she said that that you heard and that Kaylee, ma- made Kaylee, a difference? Kaylee, most of it is the, the way in which she would say it. I don't know if you can say that on the air. Uh, you can, please, please go right ahead. She said, "You know, I remember. I remember it was the afternoon of the third day of the workshop. It was a Sunday. We were wrapping up, and um, and she said to me, you know, Marlon, you don't know me. You don't know me, but I don't bullshit and I don't fuck around. She said, you're a great writer, and you need to see. And I want to see more of your work." I'm 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 really I'm really glad you you said this in this phone call and you know Calabash this extraordinary literary festival in 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 Jamaica on Treasure Treasure Beach is is truly a, a place where people get discovered. I mean, um, you, yeah, it's it's also truly a place where if you are a writer, this was my life for a long time before, but from say from two thousand to two thousand and seven. Um, the bulk of my my writing life consisted of those three days when I'm in the, the perfect world, where I'm in the world I want to be in at all times, or I'm in a world where I'm constantly inspired and just sort of um, thinking, this could be a life, to only go back to reality on Monday morning. 
Oh, that's and, yeah. And a crushing, this sort of crushing reality where there's where I'm right back to being somebody who's just daydreaming about being a writer. Um, and so, so for for the for the, the Jamaican writer and the Caribbean writer, Calabash is everything plus this this sort of um, this space of possibility. But I, I, I just, I mean, just, just. Uh, you know, the other day, seeing you and 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 Paul Beatty, the you know two Booker prizes next to each other, but two Calabash Booker prizes next to next to each other. I mean, how grand is that? And I must say, um, you know, for someone who chats for a living, I have rarely in my life ever uh, been in conversation or interviewed people like on the stage of Calabash, whether it was Pico Aya or Voil Soyinka or Chris Sabani or um, anyone else. Every every fifteen seconds, you the 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 two thousand people audience was there saying "Yeah, man, yeah, man," and you felt them, you know, listening to every word, just hungry, having such incredible appetite. Same thing happened when when I spoke with Salman Rushdie. You mentioned earlier um, all these various references, and we we've spoken about a few, and one was very early on in in our in our conversation, maybe the earliest, which was music. And you were saying you were listening to to Miles Davis, maybe mm-hmm. maybe you were listening to to Spanish Key. I don't know which which. It was Spanish Key. Really. Mm-hmm. So so what. What is it about uh, uh, about Miles Davis in particular, and about that Miles Davis, which is a particular Miles Davis? And what is it also? Because I know uh, from from hearing you speak with passion about about hip hop, that that uh, bo- both Kanye West and and the recent Kendrick Lamar really. Um, Really um, mean something to you, so I'd I'd love to know on both counts what they mean to you. Both well, to begin with, with, with Miles, I you know the I remember the first time I listened to Bitches Brew. I had no idea what it was, but I figured it's jazz. It'll be some nice, polite horn playing. I'll just put it on and go to bed. <laughs> and thought it would just be you know sort of like new age, not even new age, just you know, the, the, the sort of classic thing we people who don't know jazz think jazz is and i remember lying down to bed and put on bitches brew and that thing terrified the living daylight sort of me and, and, and i was it, it, it was it was one of the most uneasy times i've ever had at night because um, the record demanded that i get up and listen to it and it was not it was definitely not a record that was going to go quiet into the background i think that's the thing about miles it's 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 a thing about the trumpeters. I think the trumpeters are here to call up to attention. That's what we, that's why that's what the trumpet has always been. And I think one the, the the call to attention is one thing. But again, and and this brings brings us to Spanish Key, which is on um side. I think it's on side three of Bitches Brew. Yeah, is the, again the momentum. It starts and it just keeps going. It's a record I write to. It's a record that I, when I'm biking, I bike to. It's a record if, if 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 I'm in the car and you give me control of the C D player, I'm gonna put that on. There's just something about it's relentlessly moving from point A to point Z that I like. It's it's a way of just it, it just say, get this done, get this done and, and recognize rhythm and move and bounce. And um and that's on that record in particular that track, I probably listened to 
I listen to Miles Davis quite a bit, but I probably listen to Bitches Rue a lot more than any other album. And I listen to Spanish Key probably at least. I was listening to it last night. I don't think I've, I don't think I've, a week has gone by when I do not listen to Spanish Key. I don't think a week has gone by without me listening to it in near probably 10 years. Um, as for hip hop, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up in, I was 18 in 88, which, you know, people like me like to think is the gold, the, the actual golden age of hip hop. And, um, for me, a lot of the, the, um, I think people have been waiting for this sort of creative renaissance in hip hop that they didn't realize it actually happened. And, um, you know, Kendrick Lamar in particular, um, somebody I listen to quite a bit. I listen to his lyrics, uh, on, you know, I, on, sort of, on court them. I, I, I wrestle with them. I have issues with some of them. I wrote a whole article in New York Times yes. last year about my problems with one of his songs. Um, despite loving the song. I like that, um, there's a such relentless creativity going on. And I'm inspired by relentless creativity. In, in a lot of ways, um, I remember saying this in, um, in maybe in an Australian interview and I was talking about the role Outcast played in my creativity. That a huge reason why I finally sort of got off my ass in Jamaica and got serious about being a writer and doing everything to make that happen was me hearing an album like Aquemini and thinking these guys are younger than me and they have this work of art that's separate from them that they can look back and say, I did this. What do I have? I have a bunch of jingles and some art direction that I did for Vanity Fair. <laughs> Uh, like I didn't, uh, the, the idea that if you're an artist, you need to start. The only, the only proof that you're an artist is your art. Um, which finally is something my students don't seem to get sometimes. That the only proof that you're a writer is, is writing. Um, and that hip hop in a large extent, to a large extent, um, inspired me to, 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 to make art, to, um, to, to express yourself in a work of art that eventually becomes separate from you. Um, but yeah, the, the, I still find myself, even when I'm writing in medieval times, conjugating a sentence in a way that only hip hop could have done it. It's like when I read Juno Diaz, I can tell who he listens to. Who does he listen to? Well, I can tell a Juno Diaz, from listening to him, I knew you listened to, to lots of Della Soul. I know he listens to, 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 um, Ice Cube. I know he definitely listens to Cypress Hill. Um, Mob Deep. Uh, who else? You know, if I had Oscar Wilde in front of me, I could just, I could pinpoint all of them. Um, but you know, Juno, Juno in particular is one of those writers who, um, is such a firm believer that the world right outside is his window is right for for the deepest literature. And it's something that writers, particularly writers of color, can forget sometimes. It's hardly something you forget. And, and you know, it, it strikes me that um, you, you were talking about the golden age of hip-hop. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that you, you seem to say, or I, I wonder if you're saying that Kendrick Lamar, it, perhaps in his most recent album, perhaps in, in, uh, in, um, Element and other, other tracks is, uh, finding again or, or recreating that golden age. 
Yeah, hip hop is most certainly in a golden age right now. I mean, Kendrick and Vince Staples and 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 and, and you know many others. I think um, and Kanye, of course, that they they're they're pushing the boundaries of the forums so far and um, exploring territory that. You think there is nothing left to explore in hip hop, but you know, but there is. They're also mapping personal space in a way that I still think is pretty, you know, is um, is pretty new. I think um, the storytelling that's going on to Pimp a Butterfly maybe, you know, I mean, without even exaggerating, to Pimp a Butterfly is a serious candidate for best record of the 20th century so far. You you wrote about it, First century, so. yeah. It's, um, even in terms of the debate, it starts. I think is is absolutely it's absolutely um, interesting. In my list of, of if I'm going to make the the you know well, where we are, 17 years in the 20th century, what are the essential bits? I'd probably say Radiohead, Kid A, and Kendrick Lamar's The Pimp Butterfly. You know, I. Uh, it's my you, beautiful director's fantasy. Marlon, you, you you know one of my my fantasies, which is to bring you on stage uh, w- with w- with Kendrick Lamar. I I think it would be just uh, it'll happen. It'll happen. It has to happen. Crazy. It, no, it just it's crazy. But we we have to make it happen. And I'm going to talk it into being. And I'm you know I don't take no for an answer. And I just want to make it happen. I wonder. Have you heard the most recent? Um, album of uh, Jay-Z. Four Party Four. No, I haven't heard it yet. I just wonder what, what you would mean, what you would think about um, mm-hmm. t- about this this notion of exploring new territory and talking about the self in new ways, mm-hmm. and whether whether it would be meaningful meaningful to 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 you. It will be be interesting to hear what you think about it once you've heard it. I want to leave you with a. Um, with a quotation of, of, of James Baldwin and um, see how it resonates with you. I'm sure you know it. Um, he says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, um, reading is understand. You know what I like about reading? Reading brings back one of my favorite words, which is actually sympathy. Um, which is not to knock empathy. It's just that empathy is such a trendy word these days. The thing I like about sympathy is the original Greek meaning of it, which is understanding between us. And I think that is one of the things that uh, literature really, really can bring, understanding between us. And it's absolutely right that we are... That's the thing we don't, the thing that we don't realize we have in common, and my students have a hard time with this, because they think the more vague you are when you express yourself is the more universal you are. I'm like, no, that's not it at all. What we all have in common is that our experiences are real. What we all have in common is our experiences are particular. Our heartbreak is our heartbreak. Nobody's ever had their heartbreak like this before. The thing we have in common is that we all think that. And once you grasp that, then you understand what Baldwin is saying. Reading about heartbreak doesn't make your heartbreak generic. Reading about heartbreak makes you realize, I'm not the only person in the world who have had this particularness of experience. And it's that what we all have in common is that it was special. I'm basically, I'm, I'm not alone in the cosmos. I'm not alone in the universe. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Marlon, what a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait to see you soon again and to continue this conversation and finally to bring you soon uh, together with Kendrick Lamar. That would be great. <laughs> Take good care, Marlon. Thank you for taking my call. Ah, uh, thanks for talking, Paul. Bye-bye. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! (laughs) 